Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, uh, today, as this episode is being released, it is officially Halloween. But as we're recording it, it is not yet Halloween. So I feel like yeah. I should be in the Halloween spirit, but I'm not. And then people are going to listen to this the day after Halloween and be like, why are you still talking about Halloween? Nobody cares anymore. So it's all very confusing. How, how are you feeling about it all? Yeah, it's always strange when you're doing something, an episode which is on a particular date and it's... Yeah, it's hard to get your head around it. Yeah, so if I feel like it should be surrounded by pumpkins and things, but I'm not. <laughs> right. <laughs> Damn, I didn't get any sweets though either. Should be having candy and stuff, shouldn't I? Oh yeah, absolutely. Should well, be feeling sick now on eating. You know, <laughs> what? Well, what do you have? What do we have over here? We have Haribo and all that. that right, rubbish. right. Yeah. I've been eating Snickers all day. Does that count? Oh, that counts. I can yeah. just go with the Snickers. There you go. I uh, well, Snickers, and if you want to sponsor us. Get in touch. Right. Although, if, if anyone's <laughs> going to sponsor us, I do prefer Skittles or Twizzlers, but I'll, I'll take Snickers too. So Twizzlers? What are Twizzlers? Are they those red Twizzly things? Oh, you're killing me. Again, another – last week it was Welcome Back, Cotter. Now you don't know what Twizzlers yeah. are? Yeah. Phil, I have a, a deep, deep love affair with red dye number five. Like any <sighs> food that has red dye number five in it, chances are good I consume in mass quantities. Yes, Twizzlers are like strawberry licorice twists, and they have yeah, all sorts yeah, of variations. Yeah, I think probably – we probably get them over here. They might be called something else. Oh, and the there are some shops which sell American candy. Well, next so time you're in one there. and you see Twizzlers, you buy some and you eat them and you will experience joy and wonder like you've never known. I will. I will. So, And I try all their recommendations. I like their pull and peels and their Twizzler bites and their super long nibs and their regular Twizzlers. They're all fantastic. Super long nibs? Is that, yeah. That, that sounds slightly rude. <laughs> yeah, I guess I can see that. But it, it's it's not, I guess, unless you want it to be. But not yeah. the black licorice flavored ones. Never black licorice flavor because that's just a crime against humanity. So it's not proper licorice? No, no. And thank God for that. I do. I like proper licorice. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I think it's like, it tastes like d- death. It has to be pro- proper. Li- it has to be proper licorice, though, because I, I don't like the the fake stuff, which isn't real licorice. I, I, I wouldn't know the difference to be honest with you, because I think it's all terrible. Yeah. Anyway, let's get on with our candy blog. Yeah, candy, that's right. Uh, podcast. Welcome yeah. to Candy the Ending, or After yeah. the Candy. <laughs> I had a really good piece of candy the other day. Right. We're changing uh, the format of the show slightly. Yeah. I know some of you have come to hear us talk about movies, but uh, what's the deal with candy corn? Is right. Corn is a candy. What? <laughs> Well, we figured it's a tie-in because, you know, you go to the movies. What do you do? You buy candy, right? So that's a natural transition yeah. to make. Yeah. Although it's usually better to get the candy beforehand because it costs an awful lot in the cinema. Yes, yes. Although I don't know if we should mention that because if any future cinemas want to sponsor us, they probably wouldn't like to hear but us But I think cinemas that, so. do, you know, they do charge the right amount of money for the candy and popcorn that they sell. That's right. But, that's but right. It is, it is a bargain there. to buy yeah. a box of candy that, where the box is about, you know, like eight inches wide. And then you open it up and about three inches of that has candy in it. And you only pay about $12 for that. I mean, I don't see how you can't see the bargain there. Well, the way we're flip-flopping, it's like we're watching a presidential debate here. (laughs) We're definitely uh, future politicians, no? (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Well, I think we've digressed. I want to be the uh, best politician I could possibly be. And uh, yeah, let's get on with it. All right. <laughs> so, uh, so, Phil, why don't you tell people what movies we're going to be discussing tonight? Tonight we will be doing uh, Adam Sandler's 1996 film Happy Gilmore which uh, I really quite like. I oh, don't absolutely. like all of Adam Sandler's films, but I, I love uh, Happy Gilmore. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be doing the 1951, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the classic one, not the Keanu Reeves one, which oh, just wasn't so good. So terrible. Yeah. And you for, you forget that, uh, what's his name, Jaden Smith is in that movie, in good the Keanu yeah. Reeves one. He is. He's, yeah, oh, God, yeah, he's a little and, kid. And yeah, and here's the thing. He's not even the reason why that movie is bad. What does that no, tell you? Yeah, he, he's he's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, it's the last thing he did, I think, where he was very, yeah. where he was good. It gets me. It gets me. They have the they have the cool design of Gort, which they managed to do really well. But yeah. he's a giant in this one. Yeah, and then they just have him stand there and then dissolve into nano tech. Right. Yeah, yeah. That that movie's uh, a, a bit of a train wreck, but yeah, well, that's not but that's the one, not we're, the one we're doing. About. We're going to be talking about the real one, the good one, the classic one. Yes, we'll also be giving our top ten films of nineteen thirty. Yes, and. We have another special treat tonight, don't we? Oh, we certainly do. After last week's brilliant interviews with the cast of Ash vs. the Evil Dead, we are giving it a little more of a horror, a little horror treat in the shape of... Well, you, you tell it. You spoke to them. You tell the listeners. All right. Well, I spoke with uh, John C. McGinley, who most of you will know as Dr. Cox from the brilliant show Scrubs, uh, as well as his co-star Janet Varney, who you may know from uh, TBS's Dinner with Friends. Is that what, No, Dinner in a Movie. Isn't that what it was called? On, I've, uh, I've no idea. Oh yeah, it's an American channel, but uh, Dinner in a Movie it was a, a TBS or TNT show. Here, a lot of people have seen, uh, and as well as Dana Gould, who is the is a comedian and the creator of a show. He also hosts his own very popular podcast that I'm going to guess more than a few of our listeners uh, have listened to. So we are going to talk to them about their new show, Stand Against Evil, and that's a lot of fun. So it does it does look like uh, lots of fun from the yeah, bits yeah. and pieces I've seen of it. Yeah, so that's coming up in just a little bit. But first, let's dive into our endings, shall we? Yes, let's crack on. Um, we Shall we begin with Happy Gilmore? Yeah, I think so. I think people are ready for some Adam Sandler, right? Yeah, let's, uh, let's lighten the mood a bit with some good Adam Sandler. All right. So Happy Gilmore, uh, 1996, directed by Dennis Dugan, who pretty much only directs Adam Sandler films, uh, starring Adam Sandler, Christopher McDonald, Carl Weathers, Julie Bowen, and of course... Bob Barker. Oh, indeed. Yes. So Happy Gilmore, played by Adam Sandler, is an angry hockey player wannabe who can't skate. <laughs> when he finds out that his grandmother owes the IRS $270,000 in back taxes, Happy has only 90 days to come up with the money or she'll lose her house. When the repo men challenge Happy to a bet, he discovers that he can hit the golf ball a ridiculously far amount and starts hustling golfers for money. He meets local golf pro Chubbs Peterson, played by Carl Weathers, who convinces Happy to enter a tournament so he can win some big money. Happy goes on the tour and meets pro golfer Shooter McGavin, played by Christopher McDonald, who eggs him on and causes Happy's temper to get him in trouble. The golf commissioner wants to ban Happy, but PR head Virginia Vennett, played by Julie Bowen, convinces him to keep Happy on because it's good for ratings. Happy improves his behavior and starts to become a golf celebrity. He gets a subway sponsorship and gets the money to get his grandma's house back, but he's outbid at auction by Shooter McGavin. Happy then has to make a bet with Shooter for the upcoming tour championship to get it back. Happy goes to Chubbs, and Chubbs teaches him to go to his happy place when he gets angry. And due to an unfortunate incident with an alligator head, Chubbs <laughs> dies. Happy, yeah. happy then goes on the championship and eventually ends up winning the tour and the bet with Shooter McGavin, getting his grandmother's house back. 
And that is uh, the nutshell version of Happy Gilmore. Very nicely summed up. Thank you very much. So uh, why don't you uh, kick things off then, Phil, and give us your day after. Okay, day after. Happy Gilmore pays off his grandmother's tax bill and ensures there are no other outstanding bills hiding away. Luckily there aren't, and uh, he's got a bit of cash left over. Shooter managed to avoid the angry mob, but he is banned from playing professional golf for the next few months due to his behaviour. Happy also has numerous interviews over his Cinderella-like rise to fame. Uh, he carries on playing golf, That's the uh, that's, and that's the end of my day after. Okay, all right, I like it. Just a nice little short one, but, Yeah. Uh, that's it. Okay. <clears throat> what about you? What's your day after? All right, well, Happy's grandmother moves back into her house, and Happy uses his winnings to buy the house next door, so he has his own place, yet is still close to her. He asks Virginia on a proper date, and they go out to dinner and end up spending the night together. Virginia agrees to become Happy's manager, as well as his girlfriend. She gets him onto a few more tournaments, some of which he wins and some of which he loses. During a slow period in between tours, she signs Happy up for a celebrity charity golf tournament. The first day of the tournament, Happy learns that his opponent in the ball-driving contest is Chubbs Peterson's twin brother, a boxer by the name of Apollo Creed. (laughs) And that's where we'll leave things for now. Oh, lovely. Oh, I wish I thought of that. <laughs> I like that. All right. So uh, how about your immediate aftermath? Okay. We're uh, Happy and Virginia dated for a while, but it didn't work out. But they remain good friends. Happy continues to play golf. He wins a few tournaments, but loses more. Yet he makes uh, an okay living from it. He still has anger issues, but he started seeing a therapist to try and control it. Shooter's been drinking heavily and blames Happy for his fall from grace. He plots his revenge. Happy still has Otto, the homeless guy, as his caddy. He buys Otto a house with the, the winnings he has, and they become good friends. It turns out Otto lost his job as a hotel manager when the owner's son, a Billy Madison, caused a fire in the hotel and blamed Otto. <laughs> and that's uh, that's my immediate aftermath. I like it. Now, now uh, this uh, therapist he's seeing for uh, his anger, he wouldn't happen to look anything at all like Jack Nicholson, would he? Uh, well, uh, yes, he probably does, but he doesn't play much more of a part. Okay, I just, I just was, you yeah. know, you, you say, yeah, because I, so I was, go, I was, I was just touching on the anger management film, but yeah. All right, very good. I like it. Okay, what about your immediate aftermath? All right, well, Happy and Apollo Creed both get to the finals of the ball driving competition. Happy's hockey slap shot is incredible, but Creed's pure muscles mean he can drive the ball an impressive distance. They keep outdoing each other, but after Happy's temper starts to flare, he makes a bad shot, and Creed wins the competition. Happy challenges Creed to a full-on golfing challenge. 18 holes, doubles, winners take the title of the champion. Creed agrees, and they both go in search of partners to help them win bragging rights. Happy enlists the aid of actor Matt Damon, who isn't a pro golfer, but he played one in The Legend of Bagger Vance. Oh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. about that, fellow. Apollo Creed recruits his former rival and now friend, Rocky Balboa. 18 holes of furious golf later, Apollo and Rocky beat Happy and Matt by one stroke. Happy looks like he's about to blow his top, but he goes to his happy place and calms himself down. He and Matt Damon congratulate Rocky and Apollo, and the four of them go out for beers. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, I like it. But uh, to be honest, though, I can see why Happy Gilmore didn't blow his top with Rocky and Apollo. You're not going to mess around with <laughs> yeah, those Yeah, probably guys, a smart you? idea. Yeah. I realize now, doing it out loud, though, that like I have three fictional characters and I randomly pulled in Matt Damon as yeah, a real Damon. life actor. I don't know why I did that. Well, no, it works with the film because that Bob Barker. That's and true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. So, yeah, why not? It's, it's my ending. Yeah. I can do what I want. Heightened versions of themselves. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. So uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you give us your long term there, Phil? Okay. I think it might go dark. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> you? Go dark? Yeah. No. Yeah, maybe I need to see Jack Nicholson's therapist. <laughs> right. so, yeah. Okay, Shooter has returned to play golf and seems a changed man. 
He is the consummate professional, and even his legendary arrogance is toned down. Happy has made great headway with his anger issues and wins more tournaments than he loses. Sadly, his grandmother's taken ill, and the hospital bills keep on piling up, so Happy keeps on playing to afford them, but unfortunately it means he sees less and less of her. Shooter is a hollow man. Despite his outward appearance, within his hatred towards Happy is all-consuming, and he takes his revenge. He sees Happy and Otto walking to the car after the end of a day's play. Shooter walks towards Happy and pulls out the gun he bought for this occasion. He gives no thought of the consequences, he just wants Happy dead. He raises his gun and fires. Otto sees Shooter at the last minute and dives in front of Happy, taking the bullet for his friend. Happy moves swiftly and smacks the gun out of Shooter's hand with a golf club before punching Shooter in the face. Witnesses run over to help him call an ambulance. Happy cradles Otto as he breathes his last. Tears in his eyes, Happy keeps telling Otto to hold on. A bystander calls out, You can do it! But to no avail. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I didn't even think about that. I can't believe yeah. it. <laughs> Otto whispers, you gave my life meaning again. Thank you. He passes away in Happy's arms. Shooter is arrested and imprisoned. Happy keeps playing. Every game is dedicated to Otto, and he starts a new tournament in Otto's name. Happy, seeing the result of what anger can do, never succumbs to his anger ever again, and becomes the greatest golfer the world has ever seen. Uh -huh. nice. Very nice. I like that. I mean, it went a little dark, but I, I think it works. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Otto's sacrifice right. brought uh, saved happy. That's right. See, there you go. Yeah. So it's in a way, it's kind of beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't didn't expect a happy Gilmore ending to be beautiful, but there we go. Yeah, there you go. See? <laughs> okay. What about your ending? All right. So, uh, so long term. All right. So happy Matt Damon, Apollo, and Rocky have a crazy good time drinking after the tournament, and they become good friends. When Happy gets financially taken advantage of during an endorsement deal with McDonald's, he gets mad and smashes up a McDonald's play place. After he gets arrested and later released, Virginia and him decide they need a better plan, so they come up with an idea. They get Matt Damon, Apollo Creed, and Rocky Balboa together and decide to start a side venture business that works to secure endorsement deals for celebrities. Unofficially called Four Fists, A Guy With Balls, and Matt Damon, the company <laughs> recruits many celebrities and clients. <laughs> <laughs> that you think uh, that be a business that. name? Yes, no, maybe. I yeah, know. I'd love to. I just can't wait to see. I want to see the, you know, the, you know, the the logo, the banner. Yeah, the, right. Yeah, the, the logo, the t-shirt for that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, someday when we make our our after the ending t-shirts, we'll maybe we'll do some logos for things to yeah. come up with, and we'll have four fists, a guy with balls, and Matt Damon. How cool would that be? <laughs> That'd be amazing. I'd love to wear that t-shirt. If anybody out yeah. there uh, does makes t-shirts, drop us a line. Let us know. Yeah. All right. Send us one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the company recruits uh, celebrities as clients. Happy, Rocky, and Apollo work the sports side of things, while Matt Damon recruits Ben Affleck, and they work the actor side of things. Even Shooter McGavin eventually becomes a client. The company becomes extremely successful, and Happy retires from golf to run it full-time with Virginia, who he eventually marries. He still plays the occasional celebrity tournament for charity, but he adapts to the business world well and eventually becomes a revered member of the business community. And that's the end. Oh, no, I like it. Went a different way. Yeah, yeah. A little, a yeah. little lighter, but, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it's good and we got a T-shirt out of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that's definitely our future T-shirt for sure. Excellent. That's a great I want to see you, you. You have the art skills. You need to come up with a, with a drawing, like the banner of this, with four fists, a guy with balls, and Matt Damon. I think I think you can make it like a, like a like a crest, you know, or something like that. That would be amazing. Oh, God. Lo logos aren't really my bag. I'll give it a go, but yeah. We, we could do a T-shirt for that. We could do a T-shirt for the uh, crazy corporate classic casting cartel of crazy climaxes. That's, right. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, never thought of T-shirts like that. I know yeah, we could have a whole bunch of. We could have uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey with a word balloon that says "You destroyed my pussy." Oh, he didn't say it. It was Elizabeth Hurley. That no, said he it. did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we could have to try the fish. There, you try the fish. You gotta have for sure. Yeah. 
All right. Well, there you go. So it's <laughs> okay. future T-shirt ideas. Brilliant. All right. Well, that is uh, happy, happy Gilmore. And uh, Phil, what kind of happy trivia do you have for us today? Well, I'm happy you asked there. <laughs> we have uh, uh, Bob Barker. He apparently, apparently, I believe this to be true. He studied Tang Soo Do Karate for decades with Chuck Norris. Oh, wow. And when he was asked, you know, he was told about the fight scene, it was going to cut to just like Bob Barker throwing a punch, but then he said, no, I can actually fight. So that's that's cool. He developed the scene a bit more. That's yeah. fun. It also was a... It also won the the very first MTV Movie Award for Best Fight. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, Christopher McDonald, who played Shooter McGavin, he said he turned down the role of Shooter several times as he was getting fed up of playing the antagonist in films, but he had enjoyed watching Billy Madison and the fact that the Happy Gilmore was a comedy film, he realized it was going to be a bit different, so he went with it. A wise decision for him, I think. Oh, certainly was very good. But uh, in the last little bit, Bruce Campbell also auditioned for the role of Shooter. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. I could see him working, but I think uh, Christopher McDonald did great things with the role. Yeah, I, I love Christopher McDonald. Christopher McDonald. I think he's great in everything, and yeah. you know, I mean, Bruce Campbell's obviously awesome too. But I, I you know, I think uh, Shooter McGavin is definitely Christopher McDonald's character at this point. Oh yeah, incredibly so. But uh, yeah, for any fans of Bruce Campbell, if you didn't hear last week's episode, we we chat to him about Ash versus the Evil Dead. Yeah, so go back and listen, you slackers. <laughs> yeah. Groovy. <laughs> Groovy, baby. <laughs> All right, very good. All right, well, let's move on then to The Day the Earth Stood Still. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Dun, dun. Classic black and white sci-fi film. Uh, it's such a great one, too. I love yeah, this movie. it really movie. is. Yeah. So, Phil, uh, well, so why don't you uh, lead us through it then? Tell people what happens in The Day the Earth Stood Still. Okay, it's a 1951 American sci-fi film. Directed by Robert Wise, stars Michael Rennie, Patricia Neal, who ended up being married to Roald Dahl, huh. and a few other people, and the amazing robot that is Gort, which I, I always loved the design of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Classic robot. Okay. A flying saucer lands in Washington, D.C. It's surrounded by the army when an alien, played by Michael Rennie, emerges and says he has come in peace. However, as he's landed on Earth, he's shot when he raises a device. A robot, Gort, comes out to the saucer and disintegrates the soldier. But the alien tells it to stop, and it just stands there. Uh, the alien, who introduces itself as Klaatu, was for the president so he could study the life forms on other planets. Klaatu is taken to a hospital. While there, he heals himself with a, like a salve or cream he has, which heals really quick because, you know, it's alien tech. Klaatu says he has a message to be delivered to all the world's leaders, but due to political tension, he's told that this is impossible. Klaatu escapes from hospital, and taking the name Mr. Carpenter, he lodges in a boarding house to better understand humanity. Clatter was shown around Washington by Bobby, played by Billy Gray. It's a young boy, and they visit Professor Bernhardt, played by the wonderful Sam Jaff. But he's out. So as a calling card, Clatter finishes this mathematical equation, which is on Professor Bernhardt's uh, blackboard. Clatter later meets Bernhardt, and he explains that as humanity has developed rockets and atomic power, the other planets in the universe are concerned, and if his message is ignored, Earth will be eliminated. Bernhardt says he will gather scientists from all around the world, and they will meet at the spaceship. He also says, or su he also suggests that Klaatu should give a harmless demonstration of his power. Klaatu, realizing it's a good idea, returns to his ship and sets it up. Bobby and his mum Helen, played by Patricia Neal, discover Klaatu's secrets, and Klaatu reveals his identity and mission to them, and he asks Helen for her help. At precisely 12 noon, everything stops. Klaatu has neutralized electricity everywhere, except for hospitals and aircraft and flights and other things like that. He doesn't want to put anyone in danger. 30 minutes later, everything starts again. Helen's boyfriend, played by by Tom Stevens. He realises what's going on, tells the military of Klaatu's location. Klaatu tells Helen that should anything happen to him, she must get to Gort and say the words, Klaatu barada nikto. 
Clato is spotted and shot. So Helen heads to the spacecraft where Gort is busy disintegrating soldiers, left, right and centre. Helen manages to say the words and Gort carries her into the ship and then heads off to get Clato. Gort returns and revives Clato, but Clato says that it's only temporary and he will die at some point in the future. Helen and Clato leave the ship and Clato tells the assembled scientists that Earth can join the other planets in peace, but if mankind threatens to extend its violence into space, Earth would be reduced to a burned out cinder and Clato and Gort fly off into space. The end. Very nicely done. Thank you. Great film. It's uh, It's got a very important message, which unfortunately still holds true today. Yes, it does. And, you know, this is one of those movies, too, where, you know, uh, I know some people probably haven't seen it because it's this, you know, old 1951 movie. It's black and white and it's, you know, the flying saucer and all that looks dated. But it's, you know, it's one of those movies that holds up so well because it is a classic. And, and I think, you know, you watch it today. It's still. Yeah. It, it will still blow you away at how good it is. It's not one of those movies that's cheesy or boring or slow. You know, it's just a really good science fiction movie with a message. And, and you know, I love it, and I think it really holds up better than people expect it to. So if you haven't seen it, definitely take a take a, some time and, and watch it. I think you'll be impressed. Yeah, oh, it's well worth watching. I mean, I know we've gone through the plot there, but it's it doesn't matter. It's just a, it's it's well acted. It's got some great scenes. The, the design of the robot on the ship uh although quite simplistic it just works so well yeah yeah absolutely yeah great film indeed okay so what what have you got then for your what happened on the day after the earth stood still all right well after klaatu and gort leave the world is shell-shocked the warning is dire and people react to it in different ways the world's governments put a half-hearted attempt into building peace accords but they're too selfish and concerned with their own nation's well-beings to make any real progress Meanwhile, a radical religious movement called Klaatuism springs up. People begin to worship Klaatu as the second coming of Jesus Christ, saying that they believe Jesus returned, but in the form of Klaatu. Despite their cries for peace in order to preserve the Earth's future, the world marches slowly towards greater tension and war. Mm. And that's where I'm going to leave things for now. Yeah, I think our, our day after, because we know humanity, I think we're going to be similar in some <laughs> Probably, yeah. probably. Yeah. Okay, so my day after. Yes, let's see what happens. Earth is stunned. The scientists who were present at Klaatu's speech immediately begin planning for more peaceful ways for humanity to progress. Alternate forms of energy instead of the atomic power and peaceful resolutions to war and different conflicts, you know, di different uh, border concerns and what have you. Some people in the military and politicians also feel the same way, but they are outnumbered by their colleagues who feel that Klaatu's display of power and subsequent speech was an act of hostility and a prelude to war. The general public don't know what to believe. Panicked by the power being stopped, many feel scared, while others feel it was all a hoax or the work of governments trying to control them. Mankind can be idiots. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's my day after. I like that. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, what about your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, the Klaatuists continue to worship, and over the following years and decades, they find themselves on the wrong end of history more often than not. In 1963, President John F. Kennedy, who converted to Klaatuism, is assassinated. Five years later, his brother Robert, also a Klaatuist, is assassinated as well. In 1970, four Klaatuists are killed at Kent State University when soldiers fire on an unarmed gathering of protesters. In 1978, 909 extremist Klaatuists commit mass suicide in Jonestown, Guyana, because they fear that the world is about to end at the hands of aliens. In 1989, a lone Klaatuist protester is killed in China's Tiananmen Square when he tries to stop tanks rolling down the streets. 
1990, popular clatuist pop duo Millie Vanilli are falsely accused of lip syncing, which ruins their careers. <laughs> <laughs> I had to lighten things up a little bit. Oh, jeez, man, you, get, you go from all those things. I, would... <laughs> I, know, I, just, just I love it, I love it. But... <laughs> felt the need to put that in there. Yeah. In, uh, in 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr., who followed in his father's footsteps and was a public clatuist, dies in a tragic plane crash, which some people suspect is a result of a conspiracy. On December 31st, 1999, as the world is in a panic about Y2K, another spacecraft lands in Washington, D.C. It is identical to Klaatu's. The door opens and Gort walks out. The world, figuratively this time, stands still. God. And that's where we'll leave things for now. God, I'd be crapping myself if you, after all that, and then Gort walks out again. Right? Yeah. Crazy. Wow. All right. So how about your immediate aftermath then, Phil? Okay. Oh, first of all, by the way, I like the fact you turned it into a religion. I wish I thought of that. Oh, thanks. Clatuism, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was kind yeah. of cool, right? I mean, it seems to me that in the real world, if this alien came to Earth and then, and then you know, said, you know, fix your ways and then left, that there would be a lot of people in the world who would who would probably then worship that alien as some yeah. sort of religious the, figure. The whole second, it's fact, the fact he took the name Mr. Carpenter as well in the film, it all, right. there's all that Jesus tie-in anyway from, but yeah, I wish I'd... Yeah, that's a, it's great what you've done there, though. And I like that tying it in with the actual events. Yeah, I had fun Because all, all, all of them would still happen. Right, right, of, exactly. Yeah. All right, then. So my immediate aftermath, we have uh, Bernard and the like-minded souls feel that they're banging their head against the wall. The majority of people feel threatened by Klaatu. So focus on building more powerful weapons and rockets to launch them into space should the aliens return. Despite warning that this would lead to the end of mankind, as Klaatu had said in his speech, Barnhart is ignored. Therefore... He, along with the many who did heed Clatty's warning, start working on a spacecraft to leave the doomed planet. They send radio messages into space explaining the situation and hope they have time and that the alien races out there will help them when they leave. That's my immediate aftermath. All right. Well, like you said, a few similarities in some of the things mm-hmm. that may be coming up, but I think overall some, still some, some differences. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so, uh, well, here's my long term then. Okay, yeah, I'm interested. I want to see what happens. Go on. After Gort walks out, Clatu emerges and the world is stunned. The Klaatuists rejoice, taking this as proof that he is the resurrection. But Klaatu speaks and reveals that he is not the original Klaatu, but rather his son. He tells the Earth that he has been monitoring them since his father died, and he is very disappointed in the human race. He tells them that his father was not a deity, but that the increasing violence in the world has brought the Earth to the brink of being eliminated. A young boy rushes out of the crowd and approaches Klaatu Jr., as I've taken to calling him lovingly. You could have called him Klaatu 2. Oh, Klaatu 2. I like that better. All right. So he, a young boy rushes out and approaches Klaatu 2. His name is Bobby Benson III, and he's Helen Benson's great-grandson. Klaatu Jr. recognizes him and his father, Bobby Jr., immediately, as he's kept close tabs on Helen and Bobby's family because of the way they helped his father. What can we do, young Bobby asks Klaatu 2. <laughs> Nothing, Klaatu says quietly. It is too late. But your family will be safe. With that, all of the Benson family is transported from where they are in the world to Klaatu's ship. Around the rest of the world, hundreds of thousands of other people also disappear, transported to other ships from Klaatu's planet that are orbiting the Earth. Klaatu reveals to Bobby Jr. that his race has selected a small percentage of the Earth's population that have been deemed worthy to carry on the human race on another planet. As Klaatu's ships leave Earth orbit, Bobby Jr. and Bobby III can only watch as gigantic behemoth ships from the Alien Alliance sweep in to cleanse the Earth of all human life. And that's mm-hmm. my after the ending. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Damn you, you stupid human <laughs> humanity. Yeah. What is it? They never uh, think it through, do they? Is it from the end of Planet of the Apes? Damn you. Yeah, I was, I was going to. You did it. Yeah. You've. 
messed it up, you damn dirty apes. Is it right? <sighs> so. No, nice. An excellent ending. Thanks. I'm excited to hear yours. Let's see what you got. Okay. The spacecraft, called The Last Hope, is finally finished, and the few thousand people on it pray that they have been heard. Back on Earth, bigger, more powerful weapons have been built. The majority of mankind have become even more paranoid and xenophobic. The Last Hope blasts off into space and is hailed by an alien craft. It is Klaatu. He explains that he did say, you know, he was going to be, you know, the revival wasn't going to last very long, but in alien terms, it's still going to be a good few years. Right, it's all relative, you know. Yeah, For him, not very long could be 100 years. Exactly, yeah. He says the messages have been heard and they will be safe, but the Earth must now be neutralised. The people on board the Last Hope watch in horror as Earth has turned into a charred husk. Klaatu explains that Earth will be terraformed and made habitable at a later date. The survivors of the Last Hope are taken to a Mars which has also been terraformed and is now habitable. There, Klaatu tells them that they are to be placed in a sort of quarantine to see whether they can now be trusted and whether their violent ways are being tempered. Klaatu explained to Barnhart that he hopes this time mankind develops safely. The last time they had to do this for humanity, it obviously hadn't worked. Barnhart looks puzzled as Klaatu goes on. Back then you all lived here on Mars, but travelled to Earth on a ship called Eden. Ooh, the end. I like that. Oh, thank you very much. Very cool. Yeah. yeah, that was that was neat. I like the idea that so they've done this before with mankind. Yeah, and we still didn't learn. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, I like that. And so I was yeah, I was just thinking because it was all the you know you you mentioned before the Jesus parallels. Well, the Bible, the Jesus in the Bible was just another one of the aliens. So right, right. Ooh, I like that a lot. Yeah, very cool. Thank you. Now I have to ask: Before the Earth got uh, destroyed, turned into a charred husk, did um, did Arthur Dent escape? <laughs> uh, yeah, he managed to make it on board another ship, which was just passing. Okay, good. <laughs> but uh, you know, he, luckily he had his towel. Oh, that's right. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So those are our endings for the day the Earth stood still. Phil, tell us about the day the Earth played trivia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, some some good little bits and pieces to give the impression of seamlessness to the space ship because when you see it land it just there's no seams on it and just the door comes out of nowhere and i always thought that was an amazing effect but done quite simply what they did the crack around the door was filled with putty and painted over mm-hmm. and when the door was open the putty was torn apart and they basically just reversed the film and it was closing so it would all seal up shut oh, that's cool the musical score by bernard herman apparently inspired danny elfman to become a composer oh that's cool uh, harry bates was paid just 500 dollars by 20th Century Fox for the rights to his short story, Farewell to the Master. Hmm. It's a good little short story, actually. A good, nice little twist on what's there. Oh, I haven't read Just it yet. The basic elements. Yeah, it's worth a read. I'll do that. Clatu uh, could have been played by Spencer Tracy or Claude Rains. Cool. But they went with uh, Michael Rennie because he was sort of unknown to the U.S. Uh, cinema-going audience. Which I, I think I think works in that respect for the yeah, film, you yeah. know. Yeah, that's it. But Spencer Tracy apparently turned down the role of Klaatu because he didn't want to play second fiddle to a damn robot, as he put it. <laughs> that sounds very um, Spencer Tracy-esque. Yeah, yeah. I could just, I can, I can picture him doing that. Oh, the last little bit though, as well, which uh, originally Klaatu's death and resurrection at the end was, it was going to be permanent. So the resurrection was going to be permanent. You know, showing that you know the aliens' powers were supreme. But at the time, the Breen office, which was the films industry censors, didn't like the ending and said it was too left wing. And they wanted uh, the director Robert Wise and writer Edward Edmund H North to put in a line. That power is reserved for the almighty spirit, which I always thought didn't sit quite right with the film. Right. And the director and writer didn't like it either. Right. And thought it was totally inappropriate, but the studio wouldn't back down and they were forced to put it in. Well, that's that speaks to the film being a product of its times. You know, this was 1951. Yes, yeah. It was a lot more puritanical back then. And, and yeah, you know, yeah. with the Hayes Code and everything, these are some of the things we had to, we had to put up with, I guess, you know? Mm-hmm. 
but uh, it's a brilliant film. It's one of the classic sci-fi films of all times, and it's it's if you haven't seen it and you like films, you've got to see it because it's I, one. Of I the, agree. It's a great one. Uh, so many good moments. Michael Rennie is just brilliant. Yeah. Is just as classy. Yeah, does it really well. Terrific stuff. Terrific. All right, very good. So that wraps up our endings for The Day the Earth Stood Still and Happy Gilmore. Let's move on to our Mighty Morphing mini feature. Yes, it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Nice, uh, another nice interview coming up. Yeah, so uh, like we said earlier, this is the cast and creator of Stan Against Evil. It's a new show coming out on Hulu in December. Uh, and, you know, like we said, this is since this episode is actually dropping on Halloween, we did our Halloween spooktacular last week, uh, but this is sort of kind of a last minute squeezing it in there, you know, yeah. getting as much out of Halloween as we can because it is a horror themed show. Uh, it's just similar in ways to something like Ash versus Evil Dead, so spiritually, I think it, it'll fit alongside that but uh, uh, first up we have an interview with uh, John C. McGinley like I mentioned earlier you'll know him best as Dr. Cox from Scrubs but if you don't watch Scrubs you've probably seen him in a million other things yeah he's great in platoon yeah he's a terrific actor all around and I will say just a little warning uh, I forgot to mention this last week but uh, there is some salty language in this interview in particular and I think (laughs) maybe in uh, a couple of the other ones coming up so just be aware uh, if there are kids in the room you may want to listen to this at another time uh, or if you get offended easily you may want to just skip this. Not a ton of it. Just there's a few choice words that I, I want to draw people's attention to. So Yeah. Yeah. All right. So here is John C. McGinley talking about Stan Against Evil. Hi there. How's it going? Never better. Glad to hear it. So what what really attracted you to the role of playing Stan in Stan Against Evil? I thought it was really, really hilarious on the page. Mm-hmm. And most of the stuff I get sent relies on me pulling a rabbit out of my ass every single day on the set and that's a hard way to make a living sure because you're playing guess your best every day because someone was too lazy to sit down and, and write out a, a three-act structure right. and when Dana sent me Dana Gould sent it to me that's a funny story I thought it was hilarious my wife and the girls had gone to Boulder to see Nicole's mom and so I read it and then I, I, I sent it to Nicole and I said this is really funny uh, it goes in Atlanta, but uh, it's a conflict with me going to Dublin with my brothers. And I, that trip was already in the books. And it's important that we go to Dublin because my youngest brother was on the 68th floor of the second building on 9-11. He made it out, obviously. Wow. Everybody in 72 up died. And it kind of reprioritized when we say we're going to do something, we fucking well do it. Right. And I'm sorry for the thing. It's okay. And, uh, so I really, I really felt inauthentic calling my brothers and going like, hey, you guys, I can't, can we, because everyone has kids, everyone coaches soccer, everyone, you know, everyone has stuff. And there's, there's a million reasons not to go to Ireland for 10 days and right. be with your brother who almost died on the 68th floor. Of the... And so I called Dana back and I'm like, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. And this is not a poker play. I don't want more money. I didn't want a bigger trailer. I was like, I'm going to be in Dublin. Can you move the schedule? Uh, which is a preposterous thing to ask. Because <laughs> right. there's a guy waiting over the wings to play Stan. Right. And, you know, who the hell are you, you Irish mutt? And I was like, well, I'm going. And so Nicole calls me from Dublin, from uh, Boulder, and she says, uh, you, sh- you should do this. I'm like, I want to, but I'm going with Mark and Jerry to Dublin. And she goes, do you think that's a good move? And I'm like, Nicole, I- yes. 
And so that's Wednesday. And so I told this to, to, to Dana. And on Thursday, I'm starting to pace in the house. I'm like, who do you think you are, McGinley? And I'm talking to myself. I'm like, this is a... This is like a catapulting role from, you know, because I've been doing Broadway plays and movies for the last five years since Scrubs ended. And I'm like, I was dying to get back on the show because I like to grind. And Nicole's like, this feels like it was written for you. Right. It was not. And uh, I'm like, no, no, I'm standing pat. And so Thursday I didn't sleep, Thursday night. I was like, you know, you're such a jackass. <laughs> and then they call noon and they go, we'll push three weeks, but no more than that. If you can fly direct from Dublin to, 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 to Atlanta. And the effect that had on me was that when I showed up in Atlanta, I was willing to eat nails for you because of what you did for me. Sure. By, by allowing, not allowing, accommodating me being with my brothers, uh... That's a big deal to me. Mm -hmm. And so I showed up in Atlanta, loaded for goddamn bear. And it and the lens the lens knows all this. Right. When the lens turns on you and and your commitment to stand, one's commitment to stand, I put that shit on like I owned it. Right. And the lens knows that. Yeah. And so it felt really good. Awesome. That was my entree into stand. Right. Like in Scrubs, when you're trying to um, straddle comedy in a hospital and not invalidate people's pain and their loss. It's like an SAT question. <laughs> that, or, or an SAT answer. That is to Scrubs as uh, comedy and horror are in stand. And what I mean is, I, I wanted the show to be funny as hell and scary as shit. And... Like in An American Werewolf in London. Mm -hmm. And for the comedy not to invalidate the monsters. So that when a witch comes and the witch isn't a shrug to stand. He, I doubt he's ever drawn his weapon in 27 years as a police officer. And so how he resolves this, that's going to be good. I gave Stan, you know, as, a, as someone who loves acting and teaches it, and I love to empower actors and a geek about acting, the, the uber objective I gave Stan to move him through the eight episodes was the most passive thing I've ever given a character. And it is, Stan wants to get back to that recliner. <laughs> He's exhausted. He's lost his wife. He's tired. He's been fired. He wants to get back to that chair put on the TV, watch the History Channel, and have a beer. Well, now you got to fight witches? That's great. Because nobody else can do it. I mean, Janice can do it, but she can't do it by herself. And so the and that, that uber objective kept yielding profound dividends. He didn't want to go, he didn't want to go uh, be the hero. He didn't want to go uh, save his daughter, what she's still doing at home anyway. Uh, and... I was kind of reluctant to give him that that's what I want to do and man did it pay off because <laughs> it's authentic it's yep. true pleasure John appreciate it thanks you guys that was fun all right and next up we have an interview with Dana Gould who is a comedian and also the creator of the show and and sometimes uh, guest appearing actor uh, and also is the host of the Dana Gould Hour podcast which is an extremely popular podcast so uh, he was a lot of fun to speak with as well well uh, let's let's start off with some, with something easy tell us a little about how stand against evil came about um, well you know I'm a comedian and a comedy writer and but I'm a giant horror movie freak uh, all my life you know I was 
if I wasn't here doing this, I'd be downstairs. Right. Um, I grew up reading famous monsters and all that stuff. And, you know, I've had this career, and uh, I just wanted to come up with something that was in the horror genre, but that was funny. Right. And I, I had experimented with a couple of different ideas. I had a, uh, uh, a, I have a podcast called The Dana Gould Hour, and thank you. Uh, and I have a thing on there called Political Talk with two guys from Boston with this guy, John Ennis, who's an old buddy of mine for some Mr. Show. And uh, I thought, like, what if we were uh, exterminators and we would go to people's houses, but instead of uh, rats and mice, they have demons. Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. And then I started writing it. It was just like I could feel the air go out of it. Like, where does this go? And then, well, it's, they have to have a life outside of this. So what if you had a daughter and then it's more about the home? And then it changed. Then it became about a guy and a daughter. Uh, and his wife was dead, but she was a ghost, and they helped him. And then that, and then it became. And I just kept. I had this idea, but I just kept like running out of like die on the ten yard line, or die in the twenty, and then right. thirty, and then I came up with this final idea of basically take my dad, and and what if my mom fought monsters all of her life, never told him, right. and then when she died, he had to take over for her, and she would help him from beyond the grave, but. Only in the bedroom is the only place she would appear. Like well, that's kind of an interesting thing. It's so like Mork and Orson, right. or you know, it's like Obi Wan Kenobi. And then, I, and I was just going to do that as a digital short. And uh, Greg Nicotero from Walking Dead is a is a, a really good friend of mine. Um, uh, and I said like, hey, can you guys make me up as like a 65 year old guy? I want to try something. Come on up. I drove to Chatsworth, and uh, uh, Howard uh, uh, made me up. And it worked great, and I was going to do it as this little five-minute digital. And then just to do something with monsters, just to do something fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, I then I was having lunch with Pete Aronson at IFC, who's an old friend of mine, and he just casually said, like, you should write a funny X-Files. You'd be good at that. <laughs> and I said, I kind of just did, and I explained it to him, and he went, eh, well, I don't know, but if you can change A to B and B to C and C to D... Uh, and make it a real show and not a sketch, uh, bring it in. We might be interested in that. So I went, I took a month, and I ripped it apart again, and I found out that the wife doesn't work, and, blah, 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 and, and uh, in the sense that there's no such thing as writing, there's only rewriting. Uh, and then I got it into the shape that it's in, and I brought it in, and then he went, yeah, great, we bought it. They bought it in the room, and, and it had a very charmed uh, develop. And one of the things that happened is when it stopped being a sketch and started being a show, I needed a real actor. <laughs> uh, so I had to ca I had to cast uh, the lead with uh, a real actor, not me. I'm in it, but I'm in a small part. Uh, and uh, and uh, but it worked great. I mean, uh, John McGinley's perfect. Uh, he brought. It was the first time I'd ever created a character and then just handed it over to an actor to make his own. Like on The Simpsons, like Homer was Homer. By the time I get there, Homer was Homer. Right. Uh, and uh, with this, it was just like, okay, this is what I wrote, but make him a person. And, and he did. And it's, it's much better than I envisioned. Right. Certainly better than I could have ever done. <laughs> and uh, it was really, I was really impressed. And, and he was a real trooper. And Janet was a real trooper. Uh, I wrote it for Janet, so I kind of cheated in that regard. I knew what I was getting. Uh, and uh, I was really uh, happy with it. And for better or worse, it's exactly what I wanted it to be. It's a slightly better version of what I envisioned it to be. <laughs> the other people did better than I thought they would. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it came out. It came out great. And it's uh, it's a sitcom hiding in a horror movie. That's, right. That's how it came out. There, there are ways to do horror comedy. There's the Abbott and Costello, Young Frankenstein way. There's the Evil Dead Two, 
dead alive way, and then there's the American Werewolf in London stand against evil way, which is the horror movie is a horror movie. Mm-hmm. It's straight as a heart attack, and the people in it are funny because they don't behave in a stylized horror movie way. They right. behave like people. They don't scream and run. They go, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> and and that's what Stand Against Evil. It stands my dad, and he talks the way my dad does, and he's about as impressed by everything as my dad is, which is to say, not at all. <laughs> uh, he's much more annoyed that he's been replaced by a woman than he is that there's a curse on him. Right. <laughs> and and uh, so to that, it kind of wrote itself in that way. And finally, we have Janet Varney, who plays Sheriff Evie Barrett in the show. Only got a couple minutes with her, so this isn't the longest interview, uh, but she was really nice and fun to talk to as well. So here is that. So um, so Dana said he wrote the part for you. Oh, man. I hate when he gets there before I do, because then I really have to be like, yes, I guess he did. So tell us a little bit about the process of coming to the show and, and you know. Uh, it is a dream come true, and I, I'm sure Dana mentioned that a lot of the time when you have this specific idea of either who you want or, like, for me, I wanted it so much because he told me about it when he first started working on it, and I was like, of course, you know, I would show up to read a phone book with Dana Gould, so much less be given the opportunity to play this kind of action hero. Um, that he would see me in that light is, like, uh, I cannot sit on a panel with Johnny C. and Dana and have them talk about like enjoying my performance without getting super choked up <laughs> because I, it, there's, I don't take it for granted for a second it's just like such an amazing experience and I don't think I really thought I would be asked to do that kind of role I mean I got to do it as kind of a superhero type character on a cartoon and I like what I normally said about doing that job was like, well, listen, it's not like I'm ever going to get to play an action star in real life, so it's great to do it over here. And then to be given the opportunity to, like, jump around in the woods and, like, kill demons and, you know, take care of my daughter and and, and manage uh, misogyny at the same time I'm managing a curse uh, was it was fantastic. I'm still pinching myself. And to see the finished version, because it's such a process to take so many people, you do your stuff, and it all goes by so fast, and then and you start thinking like, God, I hope everyone else sees it the way I think it is going to be. And to see the finished product and go, oh, they did it. They made it exactly what Dana saw in his head and what, you know, what we wanted tonally, which was to have something that, you know, was scary, funny, uh, as absurd. I want to know what's going to happen to these guys. These great characters with heart that you're like, I want to see more. I want to know what's going to happen to these guys. Okay, great stuff. Some excellent interviews there, Mike. And it's uh, I like the sound of the show. And I like I like John C. McGinley, so I'm looking forward to that. I, you know, I've, I've seen the first episode of the show, and, and, it, and it is fun. And McGinley is awesome in it. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to get a sense of the, of the whole show in just one half-hour episode. But oh, yeah, it, yeah. it's enjoyable, and I, I think that it's got a lot of room to grow. And I've heard good things about the future episodes. So definitely check it out when it comes out on Hulu in December. Yeah, and it's – well, it's going to be on Hulu, so you'll be able to see it online. But I'm sure it will get an actual – release over here as well on sky or virgin media at some point that's what they usually do with these those shows sure sounds good let's move on for now to 100 years of hollywood in 100 episodes and this week we are doing 1930 yes so phil why don't you uh why don't you jump back in that time machine feller and take us back to 1930 what say i'm jolly glad you asked there old chap let's <laughs> see what's happening back in 1930 okay so back in 1930 let's see the prime minister of the United Kingdom was Ramsay MacDonald, and over there in the colony was President Herbert Hoover. Um, some ni- 1930, some nice little bits and pieces actually happened this year. A.A. Uh, a. Milne, he licensed Winnie the Pooh for merchandising rights. Cool. 3M marked its uh, 
a spiffing invention called Scotch Tape. Wow. Yeah, I know. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. The Mickey Mouse comic strip made its first appearance. Excellent. The Communist Party of Vietnam is established. Let's see how that pans out <laughs> over the next few years. <laughs> I don't see what could go wrong with that. <laughs> Makes sense on paper. I'm sure they just got together and had meetings and maybe, you know, had some cookies and some scones. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. some tea. That's all. I'm sure the U.S. will take it well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Pluto was discovered. This is This one made me laugh. Elm Farm Ollie was the first cow to fly and be milked in a fixed-wing aircraft. Oh, wow. Don't ask me Probably, why. I'm going to guess maybe the last, too. I mean, how often do you yeah, think that yeah. happens? Yeah. Why milk it? <laughs> because we can. <laughs> but um Thank you. <laughs> He'll be here all week. <laughs> Try the thing. <laughs> uh, and apologies for the net. Forget the names wrong. Ina Wegener begins sex reassignment surgery and takes the name Lily Elb. Uh, you may recognize that from the film The Danish Girl. Mm-hmm. The Motion Picture Production Code, or the Hayes Code, was instituted in the U.S., which gave strict guidelines on sex, crime, religion, and violence in films. Ooh. So thanks very much for that one. Yeah, yeah. great. Host, the hostess Twinkies were invented. Oh, nice. And apparently the ones from 1930 are still on the shelves and are <laughs> okay to eat. <laughs> I, I quite like tw- Twinkies, though. So you know. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan, but I, I understand that originally the cream filling is banana-flavored, and I love all things banana-flavored, so I would yeah, love to I like, try yeah. one of those 1930 ones. Yeah, it's gone. Zombieland style. Yeah. Uh, on the 18th of April, BBC Radio reported the fact that there is no news. Really? Which, could, yeah. Interesting. Just imagine that. I'm just putting on the radio, dear. Let's see what's happening in the world today. <laughs> this is the BBC. No there news. is no news. Well, listen, I think that's a good day, you know. If you, I'd yeah, love to have it. a day it be, nowadays like, where there's no news. There is no news. Go outside and have fun. Right, exactly. We could do with more days when there's no news. Yep, yep. Uh, Warner Brothers released their first cartoon series known as Looney Tunes. Ah, very cool. Uh, Amy Johnson was the first woman to fly solo for England to Australia. Nice. And the radio drama The Shadow aired for the first ah, time in the US. Nice. The Shadow knows. I love The Shadow. Yeah, same here. Excellent. And a uh, couple of famous deaths, Lon Chaney and Arthur Conan Doyle, and some legends were born. We had a few astronauts. We had Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. Wow. Uh, then we had uh, Gene Hackman, Robert Loggia, Tippi Hedren, Robert Wagner, Steve McQueen, Richard Donner, Carolyn Jones, Joan Sims, Clint Eastwood, Edward Woodward, Sean Connery, Robert Culp, Jean-Luc Godard, and J.G. Ballard. Wow. Very nice. Yeah, I know. Some, uh, yeah, some big names. There. Yeah, for sure. But that was 1930. Excellent. Okay, yes. So uh, it's top 10 films of 1930. Personally, I hadn't seen many films at all from this year. So it's going to be one of those lists where lots of films I want to see but didn't actually see. Yeah, this is for me. That's the entire list, actually. I realized I hadn't seen yeah. any movies from 1930. Actually, there was a couple movies where I was like, you know, I, I feel like I've seen this like when I was young. But I couldn't re- even remember enough if I had actually watched it or not. So I didn't I didn't want to cheat too much. So I, I just going to – this is just my list of – Top 10 movies I want to see from 1930. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Let's go on. What's what's your number 10? My first choice is The Dawn Patrol, uh, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Uh, It's a war movie. I think Howard Hawks was a pretty great director. I uh, like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. quite a bit, and so it's a pretty well-known film. Actually, it's one of those ones that I, I, again, couldn't remember if I'd seen it or not. So uh, even if I have, I'd like to revisit it. Yeah. Great stuff. Okay, my number 10 is The Cat Creeps. Mm. Uh, it was a pre- pre-code one. It's a remake of The Cat and... Well, a sound remake of The Cat and the Canary. Uh, but it's one of those films... You mentioned them before when we've gone way, way back. It's apparently now lost. Ah, right. So we will probably never see it. Right, right. But uh, it's... I like The Cat and the Canary story, and I would have liked to have seen this. Sure, definitely. 
All right. Mm. Well, my number nine is Feet First, and it is a comedy starring Harold Lloyd. And uh, if you've listened to any of our other episodes where we revisit classic Hollywood, uh, you'll know I'm a big Harold Lloyd fan. He was a great silent film star, uh, definitely a peer of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, and I'm a big fan. So Feet First is my number nine. Good pick. Okay, my number nine is The Return of Dr. Fu Manchu, uh, based on the novels of uh, Sax Roma, uh, which are pretty good pulp novels. Uh, I always quite like all those style of things, the, you know, Tarzan and Doc Savage. I've seen some of the ones, the Fu Manchu films of Christopher Lee. I always quite like the uh, the idea behind them. Obviously, they're not totally PC these days, the way they're done, but it's you like, you like your supervillains. It's one of those kind of things. And it's good seeing how uh, the good guys try and beat them, but they never fully beat them. He always comes back to uh, cause havoc again. Right. Indeed. Yep, that's my number nine. Well, my number eight is Outside the Law, directed by Todd Browning and starring Edward G. Robinson. I'm a huge fan of Edward G. Robinson. I think he was an amazing actor, and I'll watch any movie he's in. And Todd Browning was the director of the original Dracula with Bela Lugosi. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, this movie, Outside the Law, which was a crime thriller, is a remake of the 1920 film Outside the Law, which was also directed by by Todd Browning, and that one starred Lon Chaney. So I feel like it's kind of an interesting film in that respect and uh, just some great talent involved, so I would like to see it. Excellent, yeah. It's always a bit odd, isn't it, when the same director does the same film? Yeah, isn't it, isn't it interesting? I think yeah. it was more of the nice. norm back in you know the classic Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. This, yeah, looking through some of the other ones, there's other films like that right. back then, yeah. My number eight is Madam Satan. It was a pre-code musical comedy Produced and directed by Cecil B. DeMille, it just sounds like it sounds like it was a bit of a a musical sex comedy because they had to do lots of re uh, rejigging around and cover up some of the dances and some of the scenes because even though it was pre-code, it was still a bit raunchy for that. Right. So it just seems like a bit different for Cecil B. DeMille. You know, a big a big ball scene uh, on a zeppelin and with Madame Satan, and it just it just sounds it just sounds really bizarre. Right. And it just. Quite, quite like the sound of it, just to see how strange it was. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Well, speaking of Cecil B. DeMille, my next film was not directed by him, but it is related to him in a way, and it is called Manslaughter. It stars Claudette Colbert and Frederick March, and it is actually a remake of a 1922 silent film that was directed by one Cecil B. DeMille. Mm. Um, so mostly I picked this one just because I really like Claudette Colbert and Frederick March. I always felt like Frederick March is one of those underrated actors from the classic Hollywood days. Um, it's sort of a drama, but I, I just think there's some good talent involved, so I wanted to see it, yeah. and that is my number seven. I might have said it was number eight, but it's my number seven. Okay. Okay, my number seven is, you've already mentioned it, The Dawn Patrol. Very good. Because uh, I like you, I was like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Howard Hawks. Also like the fact, you know, it's, uh, I like war movies and with, I love, you know, aerial scenes and this, these real planes crashed a load of them, blew up a few, some good flight flight scenes. And I think I've seen bits and pieces of the film. Right. Uh, and I'd like to see the whole thing. Sure. Well, obviously we're in agreement on that one. So yes. Okay. What's, what have you got for your number six? All right. My number six is Animal Crackers starring the Marx Brothers. And this is another one of those ones that I, I think I might've seen, but I can't honestly remember. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. It's a Marx Brothers comedy, so of course I want to see it. I really like the Marx Brothers, and I watched a lot of their movies when I was younger. I really had an affinity for them, and I haven't I haven't revisited their movies too much in recent years, so I definitely want to go back and, um, and check some of them out. And uh, this is one that I haven't seen, or maybe I've seen. I don't know. 
show, but yeah, I would definitely yeah. like to take a look at it and see because I'm sure it's I'm sure it's very funny. Yeah, and it is also one of the only five movies to star all four Marx Brothers in it, so I think that's interesting too. Oh, definitely. I mean, the Marx Brothers are always good to watch, even if you don't like the whole film. There's always some good good scenes, some little you know monologues or something which are worth checking out. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, my number six is The Bat Whispers, directed by Roland West and starring Chester Morris and Una Merkel. It's a mysterious criminal by the name of the Bat, eludes police and then announces his retirement in the country. But uh, there's a house with some people in the hear strange noises and apparently the Bat has returned. I uh, like a good mystery uh, film. And also, it was it's based on a 1920 Broadway play, The Bat. And apparently, well... No, it is. The film was noted by Bob Kane as one of the inspirations for a little character called Batman. That's right. So uh, it's it's one of the main reasons I want to watch it. And it was also remade again in 1959 as The Bat and starred Agnes Moorhead and Vincent Price. Yeah, you know, somehow that didn't make my list. And I think I didn't I didn't realize that that was the one. I knew Bob Kane had been inspired for Batman from a movie. And I, I think this one just got by me because it definitely would have been on my list had I had I realized that. Yeah, I well, I think because, you know, so. it's, uh, it's based on the play and it was just called The Bat, the play. So right. it's... It's yeah, one of them, but no, it does sound like a good one, so I'm going to have yeah, to put down sure. the rest. All right, well, my number five is The Big Trail, starring John Wayne, the Duke. Uh, directed by the great Raoul Walsh, it is considered to be John Wayne's first starring role, and uh, it's the story of a, you know, a, a cowboy-type character trying to cross the Oregon Trail. So you have I guess died of dysentery. Ends, he dies of dysentery, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you stole my joke, Phil. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Uh, but I, I have not seen it, so I don't know if he dies of dysentery or if his wagon loses a wheel. But uh, <laughs> I would like to see it because I do enjoy a good John Wayne film uh, from time to time. So that's my number five. And it's also my number five. I oh, like... look at that. that. I was wondering if we were going to have any crossovers on this on Yes, Yes, so as you say, John Wayne, also Tyrone Power Sr. Oh, right. And Margaret Churchill. As it's one of John Wayne's first major star roles. It's uh, definitely be one worth checking out. Absolutely. All right. Well, my number uh, four then is a film called Murder. And I say it like that because it's murder with an exclamation point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and it is basically a, a kind of a mystery suspense thriller, but notably it is directed by one Alfred Hitchcock. And as I've mentioned on the show many, many times before, I'm a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan. And this is one of the movies of his I have not seen. So simply, I want to see it. Yes, definitely. Uh, Hitchcock wants to be worth checking out. Uh, my number five is Hell's Angels which was a big war film directed and produced by Howard Hughes. When they were filming it, there was a few accidental deaths of pilots. cost an absolute fortune, but it was Howard Hughes. He had a bit of money to throw at it. And it was originally shot as a silent film, but Hughes messed around with it while he, would, while he was making it and afterwards. And it became a talkie starring Gene Harlow, uh, James Hall and Ben Lyon. A bit strangely as well, well, he did it with like uh, The Wizard of Oz and stuff, but it was mainly black and white, but there's one colour sequence which is the only colour footage of uh, Gene Harlow's career. Right. And it, it's, uh, the film is now considered one of the first sound blockbuster action films. So, I mean, got to see that at some point. I mean, oh, for sure. I think, I've, again, definitely seen bits of it, but I don't think I've seen the whole film. Right, right. All right. Well, my number three is called Soup to Nuts, and it is the first film, the first full-length film starring the Three Stooges. Mm. And um, I've never actually been a very big Three Stooges fan, I'll be honest. Mm, me, I, me neither. Yeah, right? I, I, I've always liked a lot of classic comedy. I liked Abbott and Costello. Uh, to an extent, I like um, Laurel and Hardy, although I always liked Abbott and Costello better. Um, I love you know, Harold Lloyd and, and, and Charlie Chaplin. The Three Stooges just never did it for me. That brand of physical comedy was never really my thing. But this is their first film. I feel like that's kind of culturally and historically important. And, and I think maybe 
maybe maybe they became like sticky after a while. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. And maybe early on they were fresh and interesting. So I want to check it out just to kind of see what what they were like in their earliest days. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, piece of history. I could, yeah, I know what you mean. I don't know what it is about them. Maybe it's because they are just too slapstick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's just never been my thing. I think you know. Yeah. No, but I can see why you'd pick it. Yeah. See what's on the list. Um, historically important, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because they, they were huge. They were huge stars back in the day. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so my, you've already mentioned this one. My number three is Feet First, mm-hmm. the Harold Lloyd one. It was uh, second. It was the second and most popular talkie film because he's one of the few silent film stars who actually managed to, you know, transition into the the world of talkies. I've seen lots of Harold Lloyd because he used to show it on BBC Two over here all the time. So I've probably seen this one. Right. But I couldn't put any particular bits and pieces into it to, you know, I can't I can't picture any particular scenes from it. But I always like Harold Lloyd. He always does those. Uh, Big action scenes, you know, dangling off stuff, almost dying. And he's very funny. But uh, that's my number three. Very good. Well, my number two is All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, American war epic. And it's uh, widely considered to be, you know, just a really great film. I think it's at like number seven on one of those AFI lists or something like that. It's been preserved in the National Registry. Um, And, you know, it's even I think it's so I don't know that it's a movie a lot of people in today's world have seen, but like just the phrase all quiet on the Western front is like such an ingrained part of culture. Like, you know what I mean? Like you can just be like, it was all quiet on the Western front. And that's just a phrase everyone's heard. And it's because of this movie, which was based on a novel. Um, but it was such a big hit and it was such an epic film. And it's so well regarded that I am sort of ashamed never to have seen it, but, uh, I'm going to rectify that. So it's my number two and I definitely want to see it, uh, preferably sooner rather than later. Brilliant. Okay. Well, before I get to my number two, I forgot to add on to my, Howard Lloyd thing. He was it was directed by Feet First was directed by Clyde Brookman. And ah, yes, from Clyde from the the X Files episode. Yeah, yeah I was going to say yeah, from Clyde, the episode Clyde Brookman's Final Repose, played by That's Peter right. Boyle. Just he was, that was a filmmaker. A, yes, I just thought that was a nice little thing to add on to that. Okay, so my number two is a film called Raffles, mm-hmm. and there's been a few Raffles over the years. This one starred Ronald Coleman as the title character, who's an English gentleman who happens to be a a notorious jewel thief. I, I know I've seen this one at some point. I can't remember all the details, but I know I enjoyed it. I always liked the Raffles one. There was John Barrymore's played him and uh, David Niven who played him. Great. Always great ones to watch. And uh, this one was a, a good one. Very good. Not films I'm familiar with, actually, I'll be honest with you. But I've, I've heard of them, but I really don't know much yeah, about Yeah, I mean, they're worth all, checking so. out. It's the, whole, it's the whole secret identity thing, you know, the comic book thing as well. But it's... Uh, right. It's like, you know, Catwoman does it and all that kind of thing. But it's because it's... He's always running rings around the police, and he's a charming gent as well. Sure, sure. I like that. All right, well, my number one has already appeared on your list, and it is Hell's Angels. Ah. Uh, and and But you know, there's a couple reasons for this. One, um, I'm absolutely fascinated by Howard Hughes. I, I, I have read his biography, and I watch any movie I can find about him. I, I just really think he was an incredibly fascinating figure. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, it totally was. It's just... It's bizarre, his life he went through oh, and uh, yeah. what happened at the end, the way he went at the end as well. Right. And this was at the height of his power and his youth and his megalomania or egomania, whatever you want to call it. And so this was a film that he started off not directing and then took over directing um, and basically just kept piling money into it. And you mentioned before how he, you know, it started off as a talkie and then um, it, it became a sound picture. And the reason for that was actually because it took so long to make it because he hmm. wouldn't let it go that by the time he was halfway through filming it, 
it had, the, the world had changed from being silent movies to being talkies. It took like three or four years to make something ridiculous like that. Um, so he had to then go back and add stuff in to make it uh, a sound picture because that was what the world was watching now, which I just think is fascinating that, you know, this, this movie is just the product of this man who was so full of hubris that he just thought he could, you know. Yeah. Just make an epic film, and then it was ended up being a big hit anyway, and it made Gene Harlow a star. So clearly, he he had some idea of what he was doing. But it's one of the few movies that he actually was behind the camera for. So, uh, I mean, he produced a lot of movies, but this was one of the few that he actually directed. So I just think the whole story of it is fascinating, oh, and uh, I'd like to see what it's like. Totally, the fact it straddled, as you say, straddled you know these silent movies to the sound, the talkies. It's yeah, just two eras, you know. Yeah. That was right there Crazy. on the border. Right. My number. Let's go back to my number one. It is. Yes. You've, you've mentioned it. All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah, which I have seen, and it's a, it's an excellent film. Right. It's showing you know uh, the effects of war on people. Great. Uh, it's a great war movie, uh, and it's a brilliant, extremely well made movie. Uh, back in the nineties, it was selected and preserved by the United States Library of Congress National Film Registry, and was deemed culturally, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant, and is actually a sequel which came out in 1937 called The Road Back, which I haven't seen, but that shows uh, members of the second company returning home after the war. Very cool. So I need to check that one out as well. But yeah, All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, a brilliant uh, movie and well-deserving of the word classic. All right. Very nice. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay, so that is uh, 100 Years of Hollywood and 100 Episodes for 1930. Hopefully you enjoyed our picks. And uh, I think with that, we can start to wrap things up. Phil, yeah. let's talk about what's coming next week. Well, uh, it might be a bit different next week because I've got a voucher here from a company called Consumer Recreation Services. Not sure what that's oh. all about. but <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. But uh, that, that's going to be a big clue if you're a fan of the film. We're going to be going after the ending of David Finch's The Game, which yes, if starring... you haven't seen it, it's, it's well worth checking out. Oh yeah, we I, we I believe we talked about it in one of our previous episodes a long time ago, and I can't remember what, why. I don't know if it was maybe one of our top, yeah. top was it one of our hundred years of Hollywood episodes? Oh, it might maybe? have been. What was it? It came out in nineteen nineteen ninety seven. Oh, we did do ninety seven. So yeah, it must yeah. have been nineteen ninety seven was episode twelve where we did Demolition right. Man and Guys and Dolls. Right, so that was one of our very first years that we did, or one of our very first episodes. Oh, yeah, 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 that's the, right, yeah. The 100 years. So, um, yeah, so it's a great film. Um, if you haven't seen it, definitely watch it before next week's episode because we're going to spoil the crap out of it. Yeah, so. yeah, and it's, it's <laughs> one you want to see without knowing anything about it. Because, yes, for uh, sure. Yeah, because it's a good film. Yep. Okay, and then we will also be doing the 1999 film, Deep Blue Sea. You can say it, Phil. It's the 1999 classic. Yeah, I was going to say classic because I love, I love the hell out of this film. <laughs> oh, I love it too. Yeah. It's such a great movie. I think most people do. Like, I think this is a film that a lot of people have a really deep affinity for. I think it's just one of those kind of guilty pleasure movies that people love. And I know if it's yeah. on TV and I'm flipping through the channels, it, it'll stop me. And oh, always. It's it. crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's but so it's, much uh, fun. Uh, Rennie Harlan directed it. Stars Saffron yep. Burroughs, Thomas Jane, LL Cool J, Stellan Skarsgård, and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, yeah, which uh, that featured in the the after the ending for Pulp Fiction. This, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which was uh, so, let's yeah. see that that was uh, episode nine. That one, Pulp Fiction, right? But yeah, so a couple of good films. Well, a couple of good films to us too. But I know a lot of people out there like them as well. And we'll also be doing yep. our top ten films of the year two thousand and five. Yep. And we will have a mighty morphing mini feature, which, as usual, you will have to wait and see next week what that's going to be. That's right. Lots of fun, jam-packed episode as always, so please tune back in next week for that. Phil, how can people reach out to us if they'd like to do so? 
You can find us on social media such as Twitter at after underscore the ending and facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And we're on all the various, well, one lots of podcast platforms, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and a few others. You just, we pop up anywhere. Go to a podcast platform, thingy, listening device, type in after the ending, and there you will find us. That's right. You can also email us directly at aftertheending at verizon.net. And uh, that is a great way to reach out to us as well. And I know I promised for this week we're going to share some of our uh, reader submissions. And I think we forgot. But next week we're going to share some reader submissions for things like movie mashups and stuff like that. So, so if you have submitted, please fear not. We have not forgotten you. And please keep that feedback coming. We enjoy hearing from our listeners very, very much. Yes. And if you listen to this today, after Halloween, I hope you, uh, you don't feel too sick from all the candy. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, then, as always, we thank you greatly for listening. We really do appreciate it. I am Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Are you, are you shocked and amazed that I made it through that ending without messing it up? Yeah, I am. I was sitting here just waiting for like your chair to collapse or something because some weird noise to happen. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like I get it right yeah. finally, but meanwhile, like my roof collapses or something. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Phil, you're never going to believe what's happened. The house just blew up. Oh right. my god, uh, that's awesome. Tears in his eye. I can't read today. I can't talk. <laughs> when Happy gets taken advantage of during an endorsement deal with McDonald's, I should say financially taken advantage of, shouldn't I? Just to be yeah. clear. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to give the wrong idea. Yeah, that McDonald's clown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never did trust that hamburger. <laughs> he wears a mask for a reason. <laughs> Panic by the power being stopped. Many feel scale. God, why can't I speak today? <sighs> did you forget to take Sorry your speaking this. pill? Oh, that was it. <laughs> Gets you every time. All right. After Gort walks out. Uh, I have the, okay, sorry. I put a comma in a weird place and it really threw me off. Yeah, I do that sometimes. Yeah, and you just go, what's this? It says, after Gort walks, out Clatu emerges. That's not really good <laughs> English. Okay. Uh, the musical score by Bernard Herrmann was inspired by Danny Elfman. No, no, no. That cannot be right. I had a word in as well. I'm not an expert, yeah. but I'm pretty confident that Danny Elfman was either not born yet or, or yeah. pretty young. Danny then. Elfman, time traveler. <laughs> right. All right. Well, thanks to all of them for chatting with us. Let's move on then for now to our top 100 film. No. What is it? What do I call it? <laughs> 100 Years of Hollywood. Jeez. Yeah, I see. Yeah. I think I'd know this by now. <laughs> so, Phil, why don't you travel on back in that time machine of theirs? I die. <laughs> yes, we will be doing the films. Okay, the f- we will. <laughs> okay, the, the films we'll be doing next week. We will be looking at going after the endings of... Oh, my God. (laughs) It's just nice when it's not me for a change. Uh That's all I can say.